Good afternoon and welcome to Deep in History. This is Marcus Grodi and Monsignor Steenson. And uh, thank you for joining us again. It's our long study through Irenaeus. It's this wonderful book against heresies. And we're slowly chipping away at it, aren't we, Monsignor? We're getting there. <laughs> <laughs> we, we emphasized last week, those of you that are, are joining us, if you happen to be joining us for the first time, what can I say? I, I have you pause right now and go back to episode one. And our encouragement is that you are reading this book as we go along, because we can't obviously cover every great yeah. quote in yeah. this. We have to skim over it. Right, Monsignor? That's right. That's right. And almost in the same way that the church encourages us in our study of Scripture— um, to always interpret a scripture in the wider context of the entire canon of scripture, just as we always interpret scripture in the context of the rule of faith, that's really important. I believe that that's important when we study like a book by Irenaeus. You know, if we're going to take one thing that he says, it's got to be in the context of the entire book. Yes, yeah as well as the thinking of the time, the patristics, as well as the context of the scriptures that he's using, and at least as well as the rule of faith of the time. Does that make sense, Monsignor? Yeah, and, and to remember too, I think that he's kind of a pioneer. He is a pioneer in the sense that we don't have any long extended texts about uh, Christian theology before him. So he really, this is the longest, this is the longest work in the history of, at the beginning of the church, the earliest long work. I've had the privilege of knowing a, a great number of Christians in my life as a Protestant and a Catholic. And I've known some deeply committed Bible-believing brothers and sisters that put me way to shame in my walk with Christ. But I can honestly say I've never met a Christian in my life that knew Scripture as well as Irenaeus. I love that. That's beautifully put. I mean, think about it. He didn't have a printed page. Every page he looked at had been hand-copied. Right, Monsignor? He did. That's right. And he didn't have a concordance. <laughs> I would try to imagine how could, if you were sitting down to write something without the benefit of those very basic Bible tools, it would be all memory. Yeah. No computers, no cloud. Yeah. I mean, just absolutely. That's why I, yeah. I, I am, whenever I, I dig in and read Irenaeus, in the same way that the text that we're going to look at today warns us about judging the Old Testament people for their sins. We aren't to do that, and he's going to talk about that. There's a reason 
the, we got to be careful judging Irenaeus because of the limitations of his time, because he really puts us ashamed in comparison. Uh, I don't remember Monsignor, the old Greek philosopher that warned about the dangers of writing. Oh boy. <laughs> you know what I mean? He warned yeah. that if we, if we, when we write things down, it's going to prevent us. It's going to, it's going to hurt our ability to remember. A Greek philosophy talked about that because we will, we will become dependent on writing. Well, we've become dependent on, on computers and internet, and so we don't try to even memorize anymore. Irenaeus puts us to shame. Now, that being said, Monsignor, I think that brings us into the section we're going to look at today, because we're going to look at, and, and, and I, I lied last week when I, I said we were going to cover some of what, we didn't get it done, so I apologize for that. Today, we are committing ourselves, Monsignor, because we're moving on next week. We're, this week, we're looking at Book 4, Chapter 27 through Chapter 32, and we'll be covering pages 387 through 404, and we will do that. And the reason that we're looking at this one section together is because this one section, Irenaeus is passing along teachings that he and the church had received from somebody special. And so we want to have this whole thing together. And at the end of chapter 26, he has a summary in which he says, Now where one may find such, Paul teaches, saying, God has set in the church first apostles, then prophets, their Thirdly, teachers, he's quoting 1 Corinthians. Then, where the Lord's free gifts are set, there, there we must learn the truth with those who have the church succession from the apostles, who guard the faith, he's going to say earlier. And so, there's his introduction that we have this truth. The church is preserving this truth, guarding this truth. The reason the church is here is to guard this deposit that Christ gave to his apostles. And he's saying, basically, in the way we under, understand Scripture is through this deposit. And so if we want, what's the purpose of the Old Testament? Do we need to listen to the Old Testament? Well, he's going to argue that, no, it's one piece, because it's one author. It's one God. Well, how do we know that? Well, we know that from Jesus to the apostles. So, what he does in this section is he says, for example, and then he says, we have a voice, the voice of an elder, an apostolic witness, and that's what this whole section is about. Monsignor, why don't you take it from there? Talk about who is this, for well, example. Yeah, if, you look, if you look at the bottom of page 387, as we begin chapter uh, 27, section 1, as I have heard from a certain presbyter who had heard from those who had seen the apostles and from their scholars, that it is enough for the ancients to be reproved as they are by scriptures for what they did without counsel from the spirit. Okay, this certain presbyter, 
we were this basically is this certain presbyters teaching kind of encompasses what we're hoping to do today is the section that we're going to cover these sections we're going to cover today so we meet them here and then um if you go over to page 401 um at the top of page 401 as we begin chapter 31 he says Irenaeus says by statements of this kind touching the ancients did the elder console us that's the same guy and say concerning this fault which the scriptures themselves have laid to the charge of patriarchs and prophets we must not approach them but we must give thanks for them inasmuch as their sins were forgiven them in the coming of our Lord. So this elder, whoever he is, has given Irenaeus um, a kind of a hermeneutical uh, key to um, approaching these various texts in the Old Testament and making sense of them. So who is he? And I, when I first read this, I thought, well, Obviously, this is St. Polycarp, his mentor. Um, you know, he mentions him with such loving um, care in the earlier part of um, Against Heresies. So is he talking, is this presbyter that guy? Since presbyters and bishops were, that was pretty much an interchangeable term in those days. But I thought, and you pointed out last week too, um, if that were Polycarp, why didn't he say Polycarp? Why did he keep it quiet? And I thought about it and I started to do a little bit of work on it. And um, in, in, in Irenaean scholarship, there are basically three candidates for who this could be. Polycarp is one, but Again, you know, it's unusual that Irenaeus wouldn't have mentioned his name. And, and let me throw it in there why yeah. I question that, because from the text itself, mm -hmm. it says, a certain presbyter who had heard from those who had seen the apostles. Right. Well, that's not what Irenaeus says about Polycarp. It wasn't that Polycarp heard it from someone who heard it from the apostles. Right. Polycarp heard it from John. That's right. He, he was an associate. So it's probably not Polycarp. A second possibility is Irenaeus's predecessor as Bishop of Lyon, um, whose name was uh, Pothinus. Um, now, the problem with that. I mean, it's possible because... He was martyred, right? He was martyred in about 177 or so. Okay. Irenaeus was in Rome at the time doing a peace mission, trying to get the Pope to lighten up on some of his stuff. And um, so Poly so Pothinus was the Bishop of Lyon. He came there as a missionary bishop from Ephesus or from somewhere in that area. So he, Pothinus knew Polycarp. Which fits it's interesting with, that it's interesting that he doesn't. Irenaeus does not mention his successor, his predecessor, by name anywhere in Against Heresies. Hmm. That's fascinating. Hmm. 
there's a third possibility, and it's the strongest one, um, that it's happiness. And the, the reason why this might be the stronger candidate is because whoever this elder is, is he's a heavyweight in terms of his, of his theological conclusions. I mean, he's taking, he's taking an incredibly um, breathtaking approach to these texts, as we're going to find out in a little bit, when we, especially when we get to the story of Lot. Um, I mean, this is, this is not um, just your typical missionary bishop just reflecting off the top of his head. And we know a little bit about Papias. Um, he was Bishop of Hierapolis in Asia Minor, and he was one of John's disciples, and he was a companion of Polycarp. Um, and we know a little bit about him um, from, well, for instance, uh, we get a little bit from him. If you go to page 528 in our book here, he, he, he's actually identified by, in um, 528, this is, uh, this is uh, chapter five, um, book, verse- Book uh, five. Book five, chapter 33, section four. And these things, Papias also, who was a hearer of John and companion of Polycarp, an ancient man testifies in writing in the fourth of his books. There are actually five composed by him. So um, I wanted to learn a little bit about him. Um, and it is kind of interesting. Um, Papias um, is known for um, a work that he wrote called An Explanation of the Sayings of Jesus. This must be the work that is being referred to here. And it it's basically, I think, one of the early commentaries on the Bible that we that we have, and um, we know a lot. Uh, Eusebius drew a lot from Papias um, in terms of the origin of the Gospels, the story of, for instance, of Saint Mark being uh, secretary to Peter, or the um, or Matthew being uh, having written his Gospel initially in in Hebrew. Um, I'm guessing that this is probably the best solution or the best candidate for who this guy is because Papias, who was um, um, living, you know, about the same time as Polycarp, so a little bit earlier than, than obviously than Irenaeus, maybe the middle of the second century, is making, that book made some amazing um, conclusions about the biblical texts and that's Marcus. That's when I read through this section um, the last couple of days. I my mouth was dropping at some. My chin was dropping at some points because of some of the uh, interpretations that we find in here that um, I've never heard of before. Like how do we justify Lot's incest? Yeah. Um, and and so it's got to be a heavyweight that was behind this. And Papias makes probably the best um, candidate for this. You know, as you were describing that, it reminds me of a, 
of cautions that we even have today when we are quoting somebody. Um, you know, Arianaeus's whole book is helping people understand who are trustworthy teachers. Because just because a man is a bishop or claims to be a Christian does not necessarily mean he's fully trustworthy. Yeah. And so that's why we have this book, because we have Marcion and, and Simon Magnus and Valentinus and all these other guys that a lot of them were presbyters who, in this time of interpreting Old and New Testament, it ended up with theories that went too far outside the envelope, outside the box. And they went so far outside the box that Irenaeus is calling them by name and saying, don't go there. Don't go there. Don't go there. And here's why. And so that's what the book's about. There are also other people that are so trustworthily in the box that Irenaeus says, here's a trustworthy voice, Polycarp, John, right? Everything they say, you know. Yeah. But then there are some people maybe that we're pretty sure they're fine, but there's some areas that, eh, it's a little. So maybe I don't give his name. <laughs> And that reminds, that reminds me what happens now. We quote somebody's book who we liked, and we didn't know that somebody else says, whoa, you don't want to go with him because he said this over here. And, uh, you know, we're living in a time of what's called the, what's it called, the cancelization culture? Yeah. 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 And if you have culture. cancel culture. So if you happen to mention you like a certain person, you're out. You're out. So you got to be careful who you quote as your authority. It's worse today because of the internet. He didn't have the internet. But as you mentioned, Monsignor, we look at some of what this elder, how he interprets the Old Testament. There's sometimes he's pushing the envelope a little bit that's a bit confusing. Yeah, and I can give, here's another example too. Um, the great, trustworthy, powerful pastor and, and leader, Marcus Grotai, um, just a few minutes ago identified um, the Gnostic Simon as Magnus. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he's really Magus, not Ma Magnus. <laughs> so don't you dare trust everything I say. For sure. Sorry about that. <laughs> but Latin is confusing, you know. Just an N messes all of that. That gives it a whole different connotation. But you know, it, isn't that interesting, though, Monsignor, that yeah. maybe the reason he doesn't identify, why not? If he quotes them for, yeah. for 10 pages or so. Why does he, over and over again, you'd mentioned there on 403, well, there was another place earlier where he says on, on uh, 
Uh, where did I see this? Um, on page 397, right in the middle. Uh, on three, 397. 397 in chapter 31, uh-huh. he says, of these, a couple of sentences down, for, of these stores, the tabernacle also was made in the wilderness, proved themselves ignorant of God's ways of justification and of his provinces, providences, as that elder likewise used to say. So it's, yeah, it's as if they all knew who it was, but he was, <laughs> you may be onto something with your theory here. <laughs> you know, that uh. he, he, on the one hand, they all know who he's talking about. They've all been benefited by him, but maybe of late, the elder has said he's pushed the envelope a little bit. So Irenaeus is a little hesitant to put his stamp of approval for everybody to follow everything he says. Now he passes along what he says, and some of this... Maybe Irenaeus is saying to himself, I'm not sure I agree with this whole, but the elder said it, so I'll put it yeah. down. I can give you an, exa I, an example of it. Um, when I was uh, looking up in the Encyclopedia of Ancient Christianity, which is probably the newest uh, work on this, um, um, Eusebius um, didn't think very much of Papias. Um, Eusebius did not consider Papias a very rigorous thinker and thus inserted him within the Jewish Christian tradition. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so that's, I, that's interesting. You know, 100 years later, he's kind of getting sidelined. Actually, maybe the best example, one of the best examples is Origen. In Origen's lifetime, everyone considered him maybe one of the greatest theologians of his day. Right, yeah. Followed everything he said, his books, everything. He was fine all the way until he died. But it wasn't until how long later that the church said, wait, time out here. And that's... Well, not very, yeah, not very long, actually. And then he was formally condemned at, uh, at the Fifth Ecumenical Council. That's what, 553, I think. So, um, yeah, eventually, well, look at, you know, Augustine and Jerome had a huge battle about this. And Jerome um, started out his life as um, a follower of Origen. But as he got a little bit older, um, Origen was a heretic. And he excoriated anyone that depended on origin for anything. Well, if you pick up a book by Cyprian and you decide you like Cyprian's argument for rebaptism, you're going to find yourself outside the church. But Cyprian, <laughs> Cyprian died before. He corrected his view on rebaptism. Uh, so there, you know, is Cyprian a trustworthy yeah. witness? You know, rebaptism means that if a if a Christian who was baptized, the question Apostles. is, apost leaves, like during instead of being martyred, 
gave in to the demands of the, the local magistrate and so sacrificed to a pagan god and therefore is outside the church. And then repents and comes back. Does he need to be rebaptized? Or if he was baptized, he'd never been baptized as a Christian and was baptized as one of these separate groups, like a Donatist, and then becomes a, a Catholic. Does he need to be rebaptized? Well, Cyprian and a lot of the African bishops with him felt he needed to be rebaptized. Mm-hmm. Whereas Pope Sylvester in Rome said no. And, the, and so we had this big division amongst, and my point for bringing that up is, was Cyprian a trustworthy voice? And, and that's the issue here, is this elder, whoever he was, Irenaeus is a little iffy on whether we give his name or not, right? Okay, we, we waxed eloquently on that topic for a long time on senior, half the program is that, and we got... Well, yeah, and, and as we go forward now, I mean, again, I think it's really important for everybody to understand, um, keep this in context. Irenaeus is fighting these Gnostics that want to throw the Old Testament scriptures out, just throw them out. And so he is going overboard in some ways here to try to show that everything in the Old Testament has value for us, everything. And um, and he, his sort of his hermeneutical guide, you know, his guide to this has been whoever this elder is, um, and his book on on this on this stuff. Yeah. But it's the whole goal. Irenaeus's whole goal is to show that the all of the uh, scriptures of the Old Testament are true, and and they are. They have the same status as the New Testament scriptures because they're all written by the same God. Well, that that's a key point. I mean, you said it really quickly, but yeah. isn't that one of yeah. the most important points Irenaeus is making? Both Testaments, mm-hmm. one God. Yeah. Both Testaments, one author. Both Testaments, Jesus is all the way through. In in uh, in the messages and the actions and the appearances, Jesus, it's all one. And then this elder uh, gives some examples of applying that. But maybe the overview of, of everything we want to talk about, Monsignor, and then we can get into some examples. Is almost in my mind when Paul says in Romans one that God's, the evidence of God is available in creation, therefore no one has an excuse of not believing in a creator. The evidence is there. So we will, everyone, everyone who's ever lived has as a part of, of their conscience, the evidence is there to recognize that there's a creator. And so no one can mm-hmm. stand before God and say, I didn't know. No. I, I bring that up because to me, the elder is saying, guys, we are not to stand in judgment 
of the sins that we see portrayed in the stories of the Old Testament, whether it's David or Solomon or Lot or Lot's daughters or Lot's wife, the patriarchs. There are some times when Scripture points out those sins, and there are other times that that we hear the stories and there's no judgment on them. You know, I mean... Mm-hmm. A good example is Jacob, son's wife. When the son dies, well, the wife makes herself a prostitute, or acts like a prostitute, and Jacob comes along and and has sex with the prostitute. And as a result of that, gets Perez, who is the distant ancestor of Jesus. So, in other words, as, as Aaron Ace points out, it's all about the dispensation, the story, but the Scripture didn't deal with the fact, wait, time out here, Jacob did a lousy thing. The Scripture doesn't even point that out. So, the elder is saying, we don't, first of all, we don't stand in judgment. And if Scripture doesn't point it out, don't lift ourselves up above God as if we're superior to God in pointing out that sin, if God didn't even point it out in the Old Testament. But the reason we have those stories is not so that we can sit back and stand in judgment of that and then cast it out doesn't mean anything. What Irenaeus is saying, those people, their sins are forgiven by Christ. That's right. That's between them and Jesus. But the bottom line is, the reason we have those stories is so that we don't do that. That's the reason the Old Testament's there. Paul says that. The reason is so it's a warning to us. Because their sins are forgiven in Christ, we're now in Christ, and now the question is, do we live according to Christ? Because coming very soon is our judgment. And we're in a very different situation than they were now that we are in Christ. So, you know, yeah. In fact, he talks about it being, in one place in this section, he talks about the, the, uh, uh, the expectations being expanded. Do you remember that section he talks about? Yeah, it's, um... So that, uh, how about like on page um, three three ninety three? Um, let's see what page three ninety three four twenty eight one. Yes. Um, both here, therefore, and there is the same righteousness of God in maintaining God's cause. There, indeed, it is done typically and for a certain time and with comparative moderation. But here, truly, and forever and more severely for the fire is eternal and the anger of God, which shall be revealed from heaven from the countenance of our Lord brings a greater penalty on those who incur it. Um, We're in a different situation than they were here. There old Testament's the there here is now in the time of Christ. Yeah. 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 There's again, I'm looking at my, my uh, my convoluted uh, goofy notes, and um, he was he was talking about that. For example, in Christ, in in their day, 
through the teaching of Moses, they had certain expectations in how they lived it out. But remember in Christ in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you've heard it said, but I tell you. Right? You've heard it said, but I tell you. So what he's saying is that now under Christ, it's not just whether you killed somebody, but if in your heart you hate them, you're as guilty. It's not enough whether you did adultery, that's the Old Testament, but you have lust for someone. So there's the expanded version. Now, again, I want to just say for those of you that are maybe Protestants, you're, why are you guys making such a big deal about this? This is what the Bible says. My point is we're getting an early witness to what the Scriptures are meaning for Christianity in ways that sometimes today we take for granted. It's why I get so excited about Irenaeus. You know, and you know, we were. I just point out one other text that goes this way too. On, on page three ninety, um, thirty. Let's see, what is that? Thirty-seven two. Um, um, that last second to the last paragraph, and they indeed had our Lord's death for the healing and remission of their sins, but for those who now sin, Christ shall no more die, for death shall no more have dominion over him. Um, But the Son shall come in the glory of the Father, exacting from his agents and stewards the money which he lent them with usury, and to whom he gave most of him he will require the most. Um, I mean, basically the idea is um, in Christ now, after our baptism, we're in a very different situation. Yeah. And historically, Monsignor, at this time, we haven't yet seen the the debates over post-baptismal sin, but it's showing up. In other words, how do you interpret it's... Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, and uh, what do you do? with sin that you commit after. First John is very strong on, on these issues. Uh, if you're in Christ, you don't sin, and that's First John. Uh, and so how do you, what do you deal with, with post? And right after the, the, the section you read, if you went on yeah. a little bit longer, it says, we ought not therefore, said that elder, there's the this is now we're back into the elder himself. Yeah. We we ought not therefore said that elder to be proud nor to reproach the ancients, but ourselves to fear, lest happily after the knowledge of Christ, if we do anything which pleases not God, we no longer have remission of our sins but find ourselves shut out of his kingdom. The, you know, I, I could just, okay, so we're writing here. That's a really good point you make. We're writing here, Irenaeus is writing at the end of this, what we figure, about 180 or something. Um, just 20 more years are going to come pass, 25 more and Tertullian and Origen both are going to be attacking 
the Bishop of Rome for his willingness to allow for repentance after adultery. Tertullian and Origen said it is not possible. It's up to God, but no priest on earth can forgive that sin. And so you can see how it was a strict church. Yeah. Um, again, we take things for granted. In fact, as Catholics uh, that have sacramental and canon law stipulations on forgiveness and who can forgive sins, so we have this. We have rules as Catholics. Outside the Catholic Church, sadly, a vast majority of Christians just figure it's just between me and Jesus, and take First First John one nine, you know, where it says, "If you confess your sins, He is faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness." Okay, well then, Lord, I'm sorry, I, I did that, and move on, or. You're in the, the mindset that, well, Christ died for my sins both then, now, and forever, regardless of how I live my life. So once I've thrown my life into the arms of Christ and his righteousness, his righteousness covers me regardless of how I live. His righteousness mm -hmm. is imputed to me, covers up my sin. You know, that, that old image that supposedly Luther's, Luther said, I'm a pile of, of dung covered with snow. Yeah. And so it, these issues don't even matter anymore in that theology. Because uh, it, it, it's not so much whether we could do a sin so bad that could separate us from God. It's that we are sinners so bad that there's not a thing we can do, period. And if it wasn't for the covering of Christ's righteousness, we couldn't stand before God. I mean, that's Luther and... Okay, and so you, what you see is that idea that Luther's talking about mm -hmm. ain't anywhere during the time of Irenaeus. That's right. It's not. So Luther, then that view of, of imputed righteousness is not digging back and finding out the way it was in the early church because it wasn't there anywhere. It isn't in Augustine. In the, in the 5th century. It's nowhere there. But it was an issue for Luther himself personally how to deal with the feeling of guilt that was in Luther's life. It's a uh -huh. real issue. How do you deal with sin, especially sin after baptism? It's been an issue for the whole 2,000 years. And that's why the church has tried to understand John 20, the giving of the authority to forgive sins in John 20 to his disciples. And how do we live that out in the church so that people can then, at any one time in their life, believe that they have a chance to start over? That's the sacrament of confession. After I was originally cleansed. But it's also, Monsignor, it's still going to be a couple hundred years, right, where many very well-informed Christians are going to save baptism to the last moment. That's right. That's right. Um, even some of the saints. Yeah. I was, not to the last moment, but I was thinking, I've always been struck with uh, Gregory of Nazianzus. Um, he... He was only baptized after um, he was sailing up from Alexandria to Athens, and 
was about to be shipwrecked. And he made a promise that he would immediately be baptized if the Lord would save him. But, you know, even, you know, these young Christians were not, they had, they did not take baptism right away because they wanted to get through, especially the stormy adolescent period. Okay. Well, so none of that's coming up here yet in this discussion. Yeah, no, not yet. You know, but yeah. if anything, what the elder and what Irenaeus are emphasizing, and to me, this is the biggest point, and you see this on page 391, um, where the the elder is saying, as well as the Irenaeus is repeating it, in like manner, again, the transgressions of the people you see are written down, not for their sake who did them then transgress, but for our rebuke, and that we might know that it is one and the same God against whom they sinned and against whom sin even now, certain of those who say they have believed. And then he quotes, he goes on to quote 1 Corinthians 10. And yeah. that is a, a very important section, in my view, that, again, it's my personal view, is that it, 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 it needs to be a hermeneutic for how we understand the history of Christianity that I don't think is brought out enough in books of church history. In the Old Testament, we see from beginning to end of Adam all the way through the exile, we see many, 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 many examples where God's people sin. And as a result, God, because of his covenantal relationship with his people, is obligated to punish. And even if the people say they're sorry and repent, God will forgive them, but he is still obligated to carry out his punishment. And the good example of that we see in the examples on page, where are we at here, Monsignor? We jump all the way ahead to, yeah, to David and Solomon. Oh, no, no, we're actually mm -hmm. jumping back a little bit. That's at the very beginning of this section. It's the I think it's the first thing that the elder talks about on page 388, 389. He talks about David and how both David and Solomon had a relationship mm -hmm. with God and things were going great, but then they, through lust, failed and as a result brought on the anger of God. And so God is obligated to carry out his punishment because of the justice of God, or the Old Testament word is, I've mentioned for his hesed. Yeah. And so we see David, and David repents, but we know the story. What happened is, the baby dies. The punishment is there. Solomon, the same thing. And the point here, which I've not heard many people point out, and that is specifically in Deuteronomy, Moses warns, don't you marry these other wives because they're going to take your heart away and you'll reap God's anger. Well, that's exactly what Solomon does. We see this on the bottom of P389. Uh, he, he, he took wives of all nations and permitted them to set up idols in Israel. And there towards the bottom of 389, that his heart was not perfect with the Lord 
His heart went in, and Solomon did evil in the sight of God, and the Lord was angry with Solomon, for his heart was not perfect in the Lord as the heart of David had been. And so the rebuke laid on him by Scripture was sufficient, as that presbyter affirmed. There's the elder again. There's the elder, yeah. That no flesh might glory before the Lord. So again, these are all there, not so that we stand in judgment of David or Solomon, but say, it's true today. After Christ. And the point is the history of the church. It's sometimes we think it doesn't matter what a, what a pope does or a bishop does or what a presbyter does or what a deacon does or what a religious does or what we do. It's the same God. It's the same view of sin. In fact, they're saying it's stronger for us. That's right. And that's why the early church took it so seriously. If you sin after baptism, this is a serious thing. How do we deal with this? What was that one, that one king of Germany that had to grovel on his knees all the way to the Pope to get forgiveness so he, because of his excommunication? Yeah. They, that's they, right. They took it. You know, the, you know for uh, Catholic people today, it's just, I think it's quite interesting, the significant development in that early millennium of the church, the first millennium of the church, we went from once once the bishops figured out a, a way to deal with post baptismal sin, it was it was always involving public penance, and it's you know after in the you know in the early Middle Ages, private penance came in into place, and I've often wondered about that. Um, because the problem that private penance brings is that um, people get too casual about their sins. They can they can fix it at con you know when confession comes around. Public penance, when you know, like I mean, the most e extraordinary example is Saint Ambrose giving penance to the Emperor Theodosius. He had to stand in sackcloth and ashes outside the church for some period of time. So everybody knew he was doing penance. Um, but he wrote later that that saved his soul. He told his biographer that saved his soul. He thanked her, Ambrose for it. Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. you know, the, to me, this really brings up, you know, what does this have to do with today? And you just said that we become very casual about our sin. Who was that modern psychologist that wrote a book about whatever happened to sin? Oh, yeah. Oh, I forgot his name, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, we're so casual about it. And it's not enough to have the Bible alone because we can find... The truth is, as Irenaeus and the elder were saying, that the reason we have these stories is to remind us about what sin can do. And that now in Christ, though we've been given grace and we've been given complete forgiveness and we've been given new life and even the promise of eternal life and, and being divinized, you know, to have that, all, that, all that he talks about, the key point you'll see all the way through Irenaeus and you'll see in Scripture is that there's always the two ways. There's the two ways. 
There's no just one way now that Christ has come. There's always the two ways. And we see that, and the reason we know that is immediately after the death and resurrection and ascension of, and then the New Testament documents, we also have a book called the Didache, and we have a letter to Barnabas that emphasized the two ways. It wasn't mm-hmm. done away with, as Luther would say, essentially. Luther does away with the two ways. There's now one way. You accept Jesus, and then you, can, you don't have to worry about sin. Now, I know a good, faithful evangelical prophet would never say it that way. But having been an evangelical pastor, sadly, that's the way majority of Christians live their life. And we Catholics do too. That's the point. The seriousness of it here is that, and what I was going to say is, the Bible alone is not sufficient to make sure we take it seriously. Reading the early church fathers isn't sufficient for us to make sure we get it correctly, which is why we have a church that helps us understand the seriousness. And I would say that's why the the gift of the Holy Spirit is that we have a catechism, because we have a lot of voices in the church, especially with the internet. What about the sin of abortion? What about the sin of divorce? What about the sin of of misusing our money in ways that's immoral? Do we just flippantly? What about lying? The point is, we'll be held accountable. Our Lord said it, and we need to take it seriously. I recently heard a homily in a in a, a church where we're all sitting there with masks on, sitting six or more feet apart. There's hardly anybody in this in the sanctuary now. And the good elderly priest got up and preached. And he said, you know, it is such a great, after all these years as being a priest, it is such a great uh, honor to be the priest of a church full of saints. Because I never see any of you at confession. I mean, what a great privilege it is to know that none of you need to confess your sins. Like I, you know, he said, I do daily mass, and I see maybe three or four of you. You know, what a great privilege it is that all of you are saints. You've arrived. <laughs> that's really funny. <laughs> well, you know, that's kind yeah. of what Irenaeus and the, and the elder are saying. Guys, the reason for the Old Testament, don't write it off and say it doesn't matter. It matters because it's there to tell us that we stand before God in judgment for what we're going to do. Uh, let's see here. Monsignor, for example, on page 394, 28.3. Okay, 28, but the bottom of 395. Okay. Did you already do this one? And who are those who in that other time also gave themselves over unto death 
those, of course, who believe not and are not subject to God. And again, who are saved and have received their inheritance? Well, those surely who believe God and keep their love toward him. There's the two ways. There's the two ways. That's all the thread all the way through. Either believe in God and, and make yourself subject to God or, or, or not. I mean, that's, that's who again in our case, our case, are those who are saved and who receive eternal life. Is it not the lovers of God and believers of his promises and such as have become children in malice? You know, there we are. Yeah. Now, Marcus says... Um, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of uh, things as, to cover here, but please go yeah. ahead. As a former Presbyterian, yeah. I wanted to ask you what you made of the next page, on page 396. The whole question of um, did, did God predestine all of, the, all of these sins? Um, and how about section two at the bottom of page 396, 39 two. If, or, or yeah, 29 two, sorry. If therefore, or even in our time, all those of whom God knoweth that they will not believe as he knoweth beforehand are given over by him to their own unbelief. And if he turn away his face from that sort of people, leaving them in darkness, which they have uh, chosen for themselves, um, well, and so on. Um, question being here, what, what does St. Irenaeus mean by, um, by God's foreknowledge in these passages? Let me read another sentence a little bit farther on, okay. then I'll go there. Because he says okay. at the top of 397, about line 5, And in what sense the Lord spake in parables and caused blindness to Israel, that seeing they may not see, because he knew their unbelief, in the same sense he likewise hardened the heart of Pharaoh, so that he, seeing that it is the finger of God which leads out the people, might not believe, but he, but be cast headlong into the sea of infidelity. You know, that whole issue of predestination or foreknowledge. And yeah. I remember it divides Christians, and it has. I remember in the history of the Catholic Church, wasn't there a time when I think it was the Jesuits and the, and the oh, Dominicans yeah. were ordered to not talk about it anymore? Because they were at each other's throat. I think it was them, you know, about this whole issue. And, you know, I remember struggling with that always as a as a Calvinist. You know, in some ways I was what we jokingly called a four-point Calvinist because uh, the oh. fifth the fifth <laughs> point did. about double predestination I just never sat well with me. Because if if we emphasize predestination such that as we take the scriptures to mean what they sound on the surface to mean that God chose me, chose me chose you, mm -hmm. Monsignor, before the creation of the world to believe the implication, as Calvin took it, was that it therefore means he didn't choose some. And so what you end up with is kind of this either-or situation, and where 
it always, I know there are philosophical ways and theological ways to describe this, but it always bothered me in this hardening of Pharaoh's heart issue, or, or that he would use it in parables so that those people would not see or not hear. Because in a predestined way, God doing, causing Pharaoh's heart to be hardened, in my mind, meant that Pharaoh wasn't culpable. Yeah, yes. If God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that Pharaoh did what he did, then then how is Pharaoh culpable for that? Um, if Judas did what he did because God made him do it, then how was Judas culpable? In fact, where does the culpability end up? Except on God's plate. And what I... What in this section, what I hear St. Irenaeus saying is God certainly knew what was going to happen because he can see it ahead, but he didn't cause it to happen. They they made these choices of their own free will. And and the hardness of Pharaoh's heart was the punishment after the sinful act had been done. Irenaeus I, I, uh, I yeah. think that is really the important part of what I agree with you. Uh, and what we end up with is always pushing us back to the mystery of the both and. And it, when we enter into these areas, we're ending in areas that Irenaeus earlier had said, we don't go. Because there's a mystery um, of God's foreknowledge from the beginning of the world, and but what extent did he have a hand in it, his predestination? And it's a both-and. Mm-hmm. We have to leave it as a both-and and say it's a mystery. At the same time, recognizing God doesn't cause evil, so the, the culpability doesn't rest on his plate. But at the same time, we have to protect Pharaoh's freedom anyone's freedom who doesn't believe. So if a person doesn't choose to believe on all those verses we've been reading, they will stand before God in judgment of that. And the hardness of heart um, is to take away one's vision, basically. That's the punishment. So if one is living in darkness, I mean, Pharaoh didn't start with a hard heart. He chose that way, and that was the that was uh, God's punishment on him. I, I think se- yep. several pages he goes on about that principle. I think in this section, I was really impressed with this. When Jesus tells Peter, "You will deny me three times before the cock crows," is that foreknowledge or predestination? Oh, and we would say foreknowledge. You see, I mean, but, but, but there's that tension. Yeah. Because as a Calvinist Presbyterian, I would have had to say it was somehow predestination. Because in in Luther's depravity of the will, Peter didn't have the freedom not to. And so you, you're stuck with this tension. I, I'm not a. I know that I'm not a, yeah. a perfect theologian on these issues, but I know that. But to me, well, the, Ju- to me, 
we we emphasize, I think, the foreknowledge side, which is the Armenian Wesleyan Methodist side of things. The 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 uh, the arrow in the graph leans more towards foreknowledge, allowing for the freedom, mm-hmm. such that God never compromises a person's free will. That everyone is free to choose. And, and that fits with everything Irenaeus is saying, is that the reason we have the Old Testament as a warning to us now in Christ, baptized in Christ, after Christ, we are called to live according to the deposit of faith that we've been given, that the church preserves and protects. But everyone in the church, in its entire history, has always had the freedom whether or not to follow God. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm going to put a conundrum here before you, Monsignor. Uh-oh. Given what we just said. When Jesus says, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, is that predestination or foreknowledge? Now, that one is different because Peter has been invested with a grace. That would be predestination, wouldn't it? Well, let me ask you, does that mean that, and again, I'm just posing this out there because I'm playing a devil's advocate on this issue. Does that mean that God works against the free will of the leadership in the church to ensure that the church stays faithful. Or does does God give is the whole um, future of the body of Christ, the church, dependent upon fallible human beings or on the promise of God. And and I'm not trying to make a mess here. The point is, yeah. to me, this is the mystery. That's why the church told those Je- Jesuits and Dominicans, will you guys shut up? Because it's both true. There's a foreknowledge and a predestination because, in my view, I remember there's a, there was a song in the 60s, 70s about, uh, listen, children, to a story that was said a long ago about a kingdom on a valley and the mountain folk below. Remember that old song? Go ahead and hate your neighbor, do it in the end, justify it. But on the morning after, one tin soldier walks away. Remember that old song? I, mean, I don't. I'm no, sorry. No, no. I, did, I didn't I, get educated that right, way. Right, but it's, it was a popular song in the 60s <laughs> yeah, back when I was yeah. a folk singer. But but the point of it is, in the end, one tin soldier walks away. And so there's that tension. Mm-hmm. You know, the idea of the church, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. 
But it may be that in the end, there's one person. Ratzinger said, in the midst of this time we're going through, the church is going to get a lot smaller. Yeah. We can't presume that this church is going to be huge. It's going to be a remnant of faithful. And it comes down to, are you going to be at least, if everybody else goes crazy, will you be at least the, the voice? That's why, to me, it's the mystery of the predestination. And it's also our freedom to stick. We can't just depend on, the church will be here because God will make sure. Excuse me. Irenaeus is saying, the reason we have the Old Testament is to warn us not to do what they did, because if we do, we will stand in judgment. And that's to every pope, every bishop, priest, and layman in the church. St. Augustine basically made that point um, when he said, you know, um, when the roll is called up yonder, St. Peter is not reading out of the baptismal registry. <laughs> Oh, this is all good stuff. I think it is. I think it's important to look at. Uh, we didn't get into Lot's wife. We didn't get into Lot. They were all examples and types of God's foreknowledge. And and maybe we, we could take a little bit more, because you were saying the, the problem with the elders' interpretation of good old Lot and Lot's wife. Well, yeah, and I wanted to bring that up, Marcus, because, you know, today we're— Today we we fall on the feast day of uh, Thomas Aquinas, and one of the great gifts that um, Blessed Thomas left for the church was his, the idea that um, moral actions how they they are substantive, objective. They're not related to you know dispositions of the heart. So. Lot, in an objective sense, committed the grievous sin of incest with his two daughters, even though um, Irenaeus makes the point that he was, he was not conscious of the fact. And the daughters who were conscious, they were justifying it by saying that um, there were no men left to populate the world, so they felt they had to go ahead and get that done. And... Um, in the way that we understand moral theology, how could you possibly justify that? <laughs> and yet that seems to be what St. Irenaeus is doing here in this section. Yeah, his his argument, whether it was his or the elder, because at, yeah. the, at the top of 403, he says, in the same way also did that elder, the apostle's disciple, reason about the two testaments. So we're caught up in this even that's a little bit goofy in its interpretation of the two testaments, meaning the two synagogues that come from the two sons that came from the ancestral relationship. Yeah, who are those? I was thinking about that too, because you know those two guys, those two children were they were the fathers of the Moabites and the Ammonites, who became to the end of the Old Testament were a thorn in the flesh yeah. for Israel. The way I look at it is, again, my way I interpret the Old Testament is the Old Testament from Adam all the way through to the coming of Christ and actually through to the history of the church, but I won't go into that, but is a series 
where God gives his people a chance to start over. He raises a leader, makes a covenant with that leader, makes a promise with the people, and then the leader gets the people to say, are you going to be with God? And they say, yeah. And then he has a successor that he passes this off onto, and the successor leads the people, and we see in Scripture over and over and over again that the leader and or the people eventually fall away from God until God gets to the point of saying, I've had it. These people, are their hearts are hardened. And so he's justified in saying, I've had it, it's done. But for a number of reasons, often it's because of the glory of his name or because of his steadfast love or because of the prayer of a leader or because he sees the heart of a new leader, he starts over again. And we see this over and over in the Old Testament. And there's a good example with after Babel, after Babel, he was, Babel was, had it with these people. But his decision there to start over is, I'm just going to divide up their languages. And so he raises a new leader, and it's Abraham. Promise with Abraham. Here we go, start. Okay, who's going to be Abraham's successor? He has no son. Well, who's the first choice after Abraham? Lot. So is Lot going to be the person? You know, Irenaeus and others have talked about good old Lot, but you look at the story, where does Lot choose to live? He chooses to live in Sodom. What does, yeah. Lot, what does Lot do rather than let the men of the community who are, quote, Sodomites, who want these visitors, the angels, what does Lot do instead? He offers them his daughters. Lot is not a moral character. And as a father, and so we see that whole thing in Lot, you know, by the prayers of Abraham, Lot is able to get out there. And then we see this whole story with the daughters and all of that, and then you never hear of Lot again in the entire Bible. The point is, Lot is not the successor because of all this. So who's going to be the successor? Isaac. Not Ishmael. Isaac. So we see the pattern starting over again. And but, yeah, and but you could see, I, I assume that St. Irenaeus was just saying, I, this story is in the, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, that Gnostics want to throw it out. We've got to kind of make some meaning out of it. So, <laughs> so here we have, you know, these two sons Kind of, I assume that Lot and his daughters represent the one synagogue of the Jews, and the Moabite Ammonite one represents the Gentile. So they become type of the future. And then Lot's wife, uh, his salty wife, you know, she just hangs around, you know, and she becomes a type of the church. Can you explain any of that? <laughs> Well, he how says, would you preach, how would you preach that? In 401 at the bottom, he says, kind of in the middle yeah. of the bottom, he says, without Lot's yeah. knowing it and without his being the slave of pleasure, a dispensation was fulfilled. So in other words, God's plan. Yeah, that's right. Came through. That's the point Aaron is making. It was about God's plan. The way it got there, and it reminds me of Romans 8, 28. God works together 
all things for the good, for those that love God and called in court to his purpose. So God worked through the mess of this thing. Um, was fulfilled. So said, can you read that a little bit further? Yeah. Without Lot's knowing it and without his being the share of pleasure, a dispensation was fulfilled whereby the two daughters, that is the two synagogues, were signified to have had children by one and the same father without pleasure of the flesh. Yeah. Boy, that's going to be a tough one to unpack. Page top of 402, which you mentioned, these daughters indeed yeah. spake thus in their simplicity and innocence. And then he goes on, and therefore even they may possibly be excused. Okay, then as yeah. you sit down later at the bottom, Lot's wife, and it's the church, and... Um, uh, I think this is the reason why he doesn't, Irenaeus doesn't say, well, in case someone comes back later and says, you know that in your homily last week, you had this really weird exegesis, and he says, oh, no, no, I was just telling you what the elder once said. That's right, because that's because right over at the top of the next page on 403, uh, in the same way also did that elder the apostle's disciple reason about the two testaments. So he's saying um, this is where he got this interpretation. From. What happened was during the week before he preached this homily, he got an email from some members asking, how do you explain the story of Lot and his daughters and his wife? And so in the homily, what's he going to do? So he gives, uh, he gives the, the explanation that the elder gave, he passed it on. Irenaeus is avoiding the answer. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, I, I would say, honestly, I think this is probably the weakest um, we've seen Irenaeus so far in the book. <laughs> Which underlines something very important. When we say the importance of the early church fathers, it's not because we're saying everything they said is inspired. Origen, Clement, all mm -hmm. of that, it's because they were witnesses. And so we see them in the context. And just like, you know, as much as we like Fulton Sheen, everything he said wasn't right. And we can't quote him that way. We have to be, everything Pope Francis says isn't right. Everything John Paul II said wasn't right. You know, these are fallible people. Mea culpa, mea culpa. Maybe that to end, because we, we've... We've already gone into yet tomorrow. Um, at the bottom of page 403. Okay. Section 2. For as all the apostles taught that there were two testaments in the two peoples, so that there is but one and the same God who ordered them both for the good of those men in whose time the testaments were given and who were beginning to believe God, thus we have made plain from the very doctrine of the apostles in our third book as also that not without purpose, nor vainly, nor at random, was the former testament given. But, now here is just an important section I don't want us to pass over. And for those of you that it's going too long, you could pause this and come back to it uh, tomorrow after a bathroom break or your dinner. But this paragraph is an important one we don't want to skip. So, Monster, let me read it, and then you explain to the audience why this is so Okay. important. He goes on, as he said, that um, as also that not without purpose, 
nor vainly, nor at random was the former testament given, but first to bow down those to whom it was given in slavery to God for their own good, for God needs not to be served by man. Two, in the next place, to make manifest a figure of heavenly things, because man could not yet by his own sight behold the things which are of God. Three, again, to prefigure the likenesses of what things are in the church, that the faith which belongs to ourselves may be made strong. And then lastly, to contain a prophecy of the future, that man might learn God's universal foreknowledge. Why is that important? <clears throat> well, I think um, what what Irenaeus gives here is basically those senses of Scripture that are talked about in the Catechism, um, the the literal, the a- analogical, the moral, and the anagogical. Yeah, these are in, in the Catechism. For those of you wondering, you can get this online or go get your Catechism sections one fifteen through one nineteen. And it, it comes after the Catechism talks about interpreting Scripture according to the context and the rule of faith, but then it talks about this traditional idea of there being more aspects to Scripture than the mere literal. And this was a big issue yeah. in the history of the Church, right, Monsignor? Oh, absolutely. And of course, again, for our, our for St. Irenaeus, I mean, if he just stops at the literal, then how is he going to argue with the canon of the Old Testament against the against the Gnostics that want to throw it out? Um, he's got to make he's got to make um, an analogical argument um, and a moral argument as well to get us to Christ. And then, and then comes, you know, the next section, which is to the last judgment and the second coming. But um, yeah, yeah. When, when the Old Testament talks about Jerusalem, Judah, Israel, the spiritual sense of the the, the literal is what the Old Testament says about Jerusalem, mm-hmm. um, Judah, Israel. That's the literal. And then we say, well, what's that got to do with us? Well, that's how we say that is a type. And he uses the word type figure of the church. So we see the continuity of the church. On the other hand, um, if Jesus is teaching a parable about... um, uh, what's a good parable about the sowing of the seeds or 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 the ten maidens in their oil? That's the, mm-hmm. That was the story. What's that got to do with us? I mean, he's talking 2,000 years ago. What's that got to do with us? Well, that's because that applies to how we live our life. That's the yes. moral side of things. The things that were said have an app, and we have to be careful with that. You know, when Jesus promised the Holy Spirit in John 14, 15, 16, such that we would know all truth, remember everything. Well, is that for, that mean that applies to every one of us? If it is, the Holy Spirit's pretty confused because we Christians can hardly agree on anything. 
But does it make sense historically that he's talking to the apostles so that they will remember and receive that full deposit of faith and pass it on trust in a trustworthy way? But there are other scriptures that also apply to us because through baptism and faith, we receive new life. We're new creations. The old is gone, the new has come. We receive the Holy Spirit. He abides in us. We in him, you know, so it applies to us too. So interpreting beyond the literal to the moral needs a guide. And, uh, you know, the catechism actually answers that question um, in paragraph 119. Um, for, of course, all that has been said about the manner of interpreting Scripture is ultimately subject to the judgment of the church, which exercises the divinely conferred commission and ministry of watching over and interpreting the Word of God. And who does it quote, of all people, in the Catechism as a back to that? Um, the very last line there. Oh, that's St. Augustine. He said, but I would not believe in the gospel had not the authority of the Catholic Church already moved me. Yeah. Yeah. Or the, the sense, the anagogical sense, I think, is, is that the one that talks about the future and the apocalyptic and all that? You know, the, oh, yeah. Well, the, the, uh, yeah, that. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, I'm just saying, go along with what you yeah. just said. Unless we're guided within the teaching of the church, we can run wild with how do you interpret the book of Revelation? Oh, for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the whole rapture yeah. group of people, which, excuse me, isn't biblical, it isn't historical, it isn't philosophically sound, but there, how many Christians buy into the whole rapture idea? That's not, if you don't have, if you're not within the boundaries of the church, you can run wild with all these things and come up with crazy things. On the other hand, too many Catholics don't even listen to what the church says about Revelation. Read the Catechism to understand that there's mm -hmm. strong reason for us understanding that we're in a difficult time. Read the Catechism. All right, Monsignor, we've uh, wow, that's we've done. We've summarized to maybe skimmed over a little bit of what this other elder, Irenaeus, was maybe saying. Well. I didn't say it, but the other elder did. You know, there may be a little bit of that in there, but he's also using an example of, of, of using that teaching to understand the importance of the Old Testament as a warning to us. Next week, Monsignor, let's pick up with, on page 404, we're going to read uh, chapter 33, in which he's talking about a truly spiritual disciple. What it means and what... And that will go on for, what did I say? Oh, that entire chapter 33 is a very long one. Yeah. In fact, that goes for uh, 15 sections all the way to page 414. Uh, and so that's what we'll try and accomplish next Sounds time. Sounds good. All right. So, Monsignor, Sounds why don't you close us with prayer, if you would. Okay. Um, Marcus, I'd like to, um, you know, th those four senses of Scripture, um, the way they're presented to us in the Catechism, come from Thomas Aquinas' articulation of them. And since this is his day, I would like to close with a, 
one of his prayer for students, which we all are. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Creator of all things, true source of light and wisdom, origin of all being, graciously let a ray of your light penetrate the darkness of my understanding. Take from me the double darkness in which I have been born and obscurity of sin and ignorance. Give me a keen understanding, a retentive memory, and the ability to grasp things correctly and fundamentally. In the name of the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Monsignor. Thank all of you for joining us on this program. And also, again, I want to remind you, on the CH Network website, there are other programs, uh, the Deep in Christ program that my son uh, hosts. There's an On the Journey program with Matt and uh, Ken, uh, also Deep in Scripture, which I've gotten a little behind in, though I hope to start again pretty soon as well as the journey home program so please check out the other resources we have available on our website look forward to seeing seeing you again next week